You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 229, maybe. Subscribe to us and listen on iTunes, Spotify, and more using your favorite podcast app. And leave a review if you can. And check out the website, codingblocks.net, where you can find show notes, discussion, examples, and more. Yeah, how about that? Leave your feedback, questions, and comments, at code, or your whatever, at comments at codingblocks.net. And uh, yeah, follow us on X at Coding Blocks. And uh, with that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Jura Zach. And Outlaw will be back probably next episode. So, <clears throat> again, we, we're having to go back and forth. Everybody's running through things right now. So, so yeah, in and out, in and out. But we're trying to keep it coming. So, we are continuing. This is our third episode on different types of database storage. And, again, this is thanks to Brantley asking the question in Slack to, to talk about the various different types and why you'd use them and why you'd use one over another or whatever. So, with that, before we jump into it, we always like to mess up some review names. So, and, and before before we go too far, I, I'm going to do the first one only because we've said it like this is the third time now. Ivan Kuchin, he has now left us three consecutive reviews. So he currently is at the top of the leaderboard. <laughs> so with that, Jay-Z, you, you want to do the rest of these? All right. We got thanks to Yoon Doggy. Uh, also, we got Psycho Duck and uh, ooh, uh, Nihira Gold. I apologize. <laughs> that is surely not correct. In fairness, they said they were looking forward to however this was pronounced. Pro- right. Pronounced. Wow. Golly. This is going to be a rough episode here. Pronounced. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I hope, uh, hope it lived up to your expectations. That's beautiful. And and I assume Orlando Code Camp's already gone down now. Yep. Did you hear anything about it? Did it end up being a massive success? Yep. I I heard it was fantastic and I'm not surprised. All right. Excellent. Well, Jay Z is now fully moved into Georgia again. He is now right down the road from us other guys. So yeah. Ooh. Welcome back. Yep, I had to figure out how to uh turn off the water outside. <laughs> It's like it was instantly. It was just how weather getting down to twenties. We're like, what do you, what do you do? Googling like, what do you do in cold? Yeah, that's good times, man. Yeah, you know, it got up to seventy something, and now we're back down into the thirties. And yeah. I think it's supposed to happen again here in a week. So yeah, and it didn't even get that cold. Like I, it was being, uh, we were being overly prepared. Yeah, Florida people scared of cold. Yep, yep. Although I will say, it's so much less humid here that like. A Georgia of 40 is like a Florida of 50. <laughs> I don't know why that. Yeah. I don't know why the cold, the, the, what, the what makes such a difference, but it's ridiculous. I'll go outside. I'll, I'll check the weather and be like, oh, it's 50 outside. Let me get a jacket. I'll go outside. And I'm like, nope. Throw the jacket back in. Like, hey. Yeah, totally fine here. Now, when you dip down into the 40s, it's a little bit rougher, yeah. especially when the sun goes down. It's crisp. But yeah. Oh, uh, one other thing. So I mentioned it, it's funny. I mentioned that I was planning on redoing my Wi-Fi, and I had mentioned like a few different companies. Like there was Unify, Omada, which is TP Link's business one, and then also a company called Alta Labs. And it just just to give a quick update on this, I started looking at Alta Labs, and it was really promising. Like their performance was up there, tied with the Omada stuff, and quite a bit better than at least some of the Unify equipment, but reading through their forms like they seem to have lots of firmware problems (laughs) like when they update their firmware they end up you know causing iphones not to connect or androids not to connect or whatever and i and that's not unique to a newer company like i had the same issue with orbeez over time uh the netgear orbeez but you know when you see that many that many complaints about you know hey the firmware update screwed up my wi-fi and now my whole family's mad at me I ended up going with the more stable route of the TP-Link Omadas because it's like, man, they're probably going to put a lot more resources into making sure that my family isn't mad at me all the time. So, yeah. So I haven't installed it all yet because I have lots of walls to go through, (laughs) Um, but it's it's happening. I've bought two of the access points. I got the long range access points and, and I got a PoE switch. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Hopefully that'll be coming up here in the next couple of weeks. 
All right, I got some new uh, networking hardware too. I'll tell you about it in the tip of the week section. Oh, nice, excellent. All right, kind well, of. I guess let's. Uh, well, wait, what were you, were you about to say something? Kind of. it? It's not that good. Oh. Don't get oh, too no, excited. We'll, ta- we'll do it. Yeah, it's mid. It's mid. Mid mid tier, like medium. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. All right, all right. Let's uh, let's do it. So. The first, the first database type we're going to talk about, we only have three left. So this is, this is the last episode in this whole database exploration thing. Um, and by the way, one of the reviews said they were surprised that we didn't m- mention acid compliance type stuff with the relational database things. Um, I guess we could have dove into that a little bit. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess the like one of the things that we didn't mention is like when you get into uh, like Cassandra and those type of things or, or distributed databases, a lot of times you don't have that asset compliance to that guarantee your rights and all that kind of stuff. And that's one of the big selling points of relational databases. But that's ironic too, because like MySQL has options that aren't asset compliant, right? And and it's one of the reasons why a lot of people have gone with like Postgres in the open source realm. Um, but like SQL server, Oracle, those type of things, <clears throat> those are asset compliant. And it is one of the reasons why a lot of folks will, will lean that way is because they want those guaranteed rights. So. And asset is kind of a, a loaded term now too, because uh, the databases are so complicated and configurable and tweakable that you can take a, a database that's, acid compliant and say allow dirty reads or something and it's like now it's not and so and there's other databases that uh, are a little bit more looser but you can tell them to be strict and so the whole like every database now obviously has acid every database that claims to be acid compliant has an asterisk by it anyway yeah and we talked about this in one of our designing data intensive applications things where it really was like the industry has hijacked that term over time that made it less clear as to what they're actually trying to portray with it right it, it, it was more of a marketing term at, at some point as i think basically what we ended up saying yeah totally yeah i remember um, there was a time we had to do some compliance uh, at a, a job site and it was my first experience with like uh, kind of doing one of the heavier duty dutier heavier dutier levels of compliance <laughs> and i was like okay cool let's get the rules we're gonna make this you know perfect we're gonna get it all checked off it's great and uh, what it was at the end of it was basically like, here's a list of things you have to do. Great. It's ambiguous. And at the end, what we really need you to do is sign this so we know who to sue if there's a problem and we inspect it and we don't agree with your assessment of yourself. I was like, they don't send out, you know, special investigators and they don't, uh, you know, unless you go hire a third party company, like for the most part, it's it's kind of honor system, which is really scary. But there's a you know honor system with liability there. So if something goes wrong, you know that stinks. So it, you know if a database says we are ask compliant and people find it to be the opposite, it's gonna there's gonna be a stink. Yeah, <coughs> my sequel. <coughs> <laughs> right, and, and and not and that's not to completely dig on my sequel. The thing is, they allow you to choose different database engines backing it. Some are acid compliant, you know, quote unquote. Some aren't. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it's not a super easy thing to talk about with actually diving deep into each particular database system. So, you know, um, a good call out in the review, just, uh, wanted to at least share our thoughts on that a little bit. So <clears throat> my with that, by the way, is a default now to NODB. So it defaults to the more compliant engine. Oh, okay. It used to not, right? Yeah. Like I, and that's been a while back. I mean, I don't really look at it that much anymore. So, um, yeah. All right. So, First up for this episode is the multi-value database management system. So I I thought I'm, I think I mixed all this up in my head when I first started looking at it, because I, I was thinking the multi-purpose one, like, uh, like uh, Azure Cosmos DB, right? Like where it does everything. That's not what this is. So the ones that we can call out that they say are the most popular ones are Adibus, which is number 86 on the list. Unidata slash universe. I guess I could say universe and unidata instead of uni. Uh, that's number 87. And then JBase is number 147 on the list. So this one's interesting. They say it's similar to a relational database system, which means that they store data in tables. So that's important, right? Which I looked 
and I could not find anything that says that it was like loose schemas, like schema on reads versus schema on writes. But the fact that they say that it's in tables makes me believe that this is some sort of schema on write type thing. Yeah, makes sense. So the, here's here's the big divergence from a relational database. They can store multiple values in a particular record's attribute. And, and to me, all that means is basically they can store like arrays, right? So if you have an address column in your table, then you could store an array of addresses, right? Like that's basically what they're saying with the multi-value thing. And, and they also comment on this and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, Jay-Z. So there's, there's several databases out there that could do this type of thing. Like Postgres, you can, you can do all kinds of crazy things with Postgres, right? Like they've, they've extended that thing to do whatever you want. And they say, that there are relational databases that could do the same thing by storing these multiple records or multi multiple values in a single record. But they say that's more of an exception to the rule. Like you wouldn't typically store an array in some sort of attribute. Like what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and uh, I was just reading a little bit about the, like the wiki page and kind of the history of how these things came to be. And, uh, it's got an interesting kind of tie in with some medical records. Uh, and it's uh, basically deals with, um, are kind of came out in part uh, related to just having incomplete data and just wanting to capture whatever you've got, whenever you've got it. Imagine when you go to a doctor's appointment or you get some blood tests, like sometimes you run this test, sometimes you run that one. Uh, Sometimes the tests that you do for certain things might change over the time. So the, the, you know, the values and the meanings of the, those numbers might change. And so uh, you just want to be able to kind of collect the, the meta, the metadata as you need it. And then, um, you're like, it doesn't really make sense in like an OLAP type situation where you really want to do like hard introspection and counting of numbers and aggregations, but it's really nice for like pulling up uh, information on like a, a person, a patient, you know, that's pretty interesting. So are, with what you're reading there, I, I mean, it sounds like, and that makes sense for the medical industry. It sounds like their whole purpose was, Hey, we know we're going to have some data in here and we, we want to just make sure we cram everything into the single record so that, so that it's all in one place. I guess my question is being that it seems or appears to be like a schema on right type thing. Are they saying that the schema for these multi-valued attributes are more loosey goosey? Like you can sort of cram in there what you want or, or I don't know if it's like, like I said, I couldn't find anything that like really defined it super well. They say it aligns well with JSON and XML, so I'm guessing that it's kind of a little bit more loosey goosey okay. uh, about what you can put in there. Okay, that that makes sense. That's what I was assuming, but like when I looked at the code examples that they had for like some of this stuff, it, like it was not clear exactly how it Ooh, was going down. I got something good here. So in in the Wikipedia page, and remember this is generalized, but just kind of talking about multi-value databases, we'll have a link in here. They say uh, generally speaking, in a, a multi-data multi-value multi-value database system a database or schema would be called an account a table or collection would be called a file so one account could have multiple files a column or field is then called an attribute which can have multiple value attributes or sub-value attributes and then a row or document is called a record or an item yeah, I did notice that in the code, like everything was referred to as files and stuff. And it was like, okay, that's a little interesting. But but being that you said that it sort of came out of the medical industry, that sort of makes sense, right? They keep a file on on a particular customer or, I don't know, patient. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. That's All right. Cool. So, so. Here's what's interesting is they say, you know, you typically wouldn't do this in a relational database system unless you just needed to, right? Like you had some sort of reason to divert from the the table column type thing. In a multi-value database system, that's how you should do it. They say that, you know, that's the whole point of it is you, you have that one thing and you cram multiple multiple values into those. And that's that's how it's expected to be done. And they said the primary reason for this, and this is coming from the dbengines.com summary, the primary reason they do it this way is because these multi-value databases are not optimized for joins. Unlike a relational database where you keep things in normalized form and then you join to get that data, they expect that data to be on that record, that file, that whatever it is, right? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm kind of comparing this to like a Mongo type situation where, you know, you've got these documents. And so you can imagine having a situation where you've got documents that models model files and each file can be radically different from another. But in this case, it's uh, it makes sense where you're like really dealing with like one person at a time. So you're like you're seeing a patient. You say, let me pull up your account. OK, here's all your info. Let me look at your lab results from yesterday and compared to lab results from a year ago. And even though, you know, they're, we're comparing these two things, like one has different tests that run than the others, but some of, there are some things in common. You can do all that stuff in other databases, but it just kind of seems to really fit really well with this kind of uh, notion of you're kind of taking on one big subject or one account at a time and then spidering off to there and, and really kind of working with like unstructured data with a kind of a person there. Uh, it's cool. So it's interesting because you mentioned Mongo and that's sort of where my head floats to with this is it seems like a mixture of hard schemas, but then the new, the loosey goosey uh, embedded nature of a Mongo, right? Like, cause in Mongo, it's the same type thing. Like they, you're not really supposed to go do joins on object oriented databases type, or not, that's not what they're called. What were they called? Object oriented databases were different. It, it, whatever Mongo fit into yeah, <laughs> whatever that one was, it reminds me of that, except with Mongo, like you can create a collection, you can put whatever you want in it, right? Like there's, there's, you could put a car in there and then you could put a person in that same collection. In this, it sounds like more of, Hey, this is what a patient is. And then any other details you want to fill in on that, just drop it in that same, in one of the attributes. Right. So that seems to be sort of the defining difference between those types of databases. You know, it kind of reminds me of like a like old school filing cabinet where you might like have a file for your tax return and you put every all the papers that you got in for that year's tax, you know, stuff. And you might have another one for um, appliance warranties where you put, you know, expensive appliance warranty information all in one folder. Or you might have uh, something else and the data in there is mixed, but uh, a human can go in there and kind of quickly figure out which folder to pull and then kind of manually sift through the documents to find the thing that you need. That's a good example. And one of the other things that they said on the site is they said the primary reason that these or, or the primary selling points of these things like the Atabus and the Unidata is the rapid application development and the ease of learning. They said that it's really quick to get up to speed on these things. So it's weird, like over time, I'd never really heard of these nor considered using any one of these because there's just so many... I guess, standard choices out there, at least in the business world of going like, well, a relational database or or Mongo or something like that. So it's interesting. I I still don't know that, you know, if I would pick it up to use it because it's, it's very niche looking, especially when their highest ranked one is number 86 on the list, you know? So I don't know. It's probably worth looking at, um, and I'm sure there are like the, the medical thing, there probably are very good reasons to use this, but I, I personally have a hard time seeing that this wouldn't fit into something like a Mongo if you wanted to go that route. Yeah. So anyways, they do say it's very performant because the data is the way you expect it and it's easy to maintain, which is a positive because not necessarily are you going to get that with some of the other larger database systems, right? Like yeah, for sure. if, if, if you're a DBA or something, you've, you've seen that sometimes these <clears throat> things are a pain in the butt to keep alive and working perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it looks like Adabas is actually uh, developed primarily for using uh, on uh, mainframes. Like it's old, it's real old. So uh, yeah, you definitely don't, <laughs> you don't want anything complicated when you're doing mainframes. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting one. All right. So next up, this one, this is what I thought the vector database stuff was going to be like, and I was totally wrong. We went over that in depth last episode. Spatial, (laughs) excuse me, that word didn't want to come out. Spatial database management systems. This one's kind of interesting. So first let's start with the popular ones so number 29 on the list is postgis which i think is funny because it's actually not a standalone thing it's a plug-in for postgres and then the next one is number 59 it's aerospike and number 136 is spatial light and i'll let you start a little bit on this one sure 
Uh, so uh, I think it's GIS, by the way. Not to it be is, that yeah, person. post GIS, not post GIS. Yeah, yeah. I will, like sometimes, like I know a guy who worked in the industry. That's the only reason I would even uh, think that. But uh, he worked for basically a company that uh, tracked like um, cargo, uh, like across those moved across uh, you know states and and whatnot countries. And uh, deal with these kind of databases is that they provide the ability to efficiently store, modify, and query spatial data. So it's data that appears in geometrical space, so like a map or a polygon or something. And uh, they generally have uh, custom types, data types for storing uh, spatial spatial data. I was just doing a little bit of Googling on this. Um, I used to work way back in the day in uh, mortgage research. And uh, a big part of that was um, finding if there were any liens or any lawsuits or just any sort of problems with the property that someone was going to buy because a a mortgage lender didn't want to lend you money to buy a house that you didn't own or had some sort of big problem with it or was, you know, had a lien on the property, meaning someone owed money on it. And so what I would do is like go through these maps and figure out like uh, where the properties were based on legal descriptions and then actually like do searches for these legal documents based on the property location. So what that meant is we would have these big county maps and I would figure out the plot if it was like in a neighborhood or if it was attractive land, it would kind of run out the little legal description like 29 degrees west, whatever. And we'd figure out what we called ARBs, which were arbitrary grids. Uh, so it would be like uh, imagine like a big piece of paper and you divide it up into fourths and you like one, two, three, four. And you take each of those fours, do it again, and you do it again, do it again. And then you can get to a really small tract of land by saying, uh, this is in uh, ARB 4434 of Seminole County. And that meant like the southwest corner of the southwest corner, southeast corner. Or, yeah, I forget what numbers I said now, but you know what I mean. So uh, you can get really precise with that. And that's kind of similar to like the the underlying data structure that's used for a lot of these uh, with the quad trees, except that this also supports 3D space, which is like a whole nother kind of twist on that. So much more complicated. And I wouldn't have been wanting to do that stuff by hand. And uh, y'all talked last time about how three like 3D from 2D is a big jump up and then going to 4D and beyond is just forget about it. Yeah. Um, but these databases are basically kind of built around the ideas that kind of that kind of power that stuff. So it makes it easier to find uh things that are like like physically or spatially related to each other uh so like mapping data and stuff like that and you can imagine like topography matters in there like um even like as i'm talking about like it makes it sound like you might think like oh this city and that city or this coordinate and that quarter but when you're talking about like mapping data and like directions and roads and stuff like that you're talking about a whole (laughs) many 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 more points uh, of data. And so if you want to be able to find the, the fastest route between two places, or if you want to find the most efficient route between 40 different places and, you know, adding fuel and, and, and um, maintenance and all sorts of other kind of considerations that you need to, to have in there to make sure that your logistics network is going to be able to kind of function. And you can imagine how that gets really complicated. And that's something where you'd probably want to get uh, one of these heavier databases in here. So that's all super cool. And you actually hit on a few points that that talking about the technical aspects of it is they talk about the fact that when you're storing things, they typically store them in rectangles, just like what you said, right? Like you would subdivide your piece of paper into, you know, quadrants and then subdivide those into quadrants or whatever. And that's how they do it so that they can find overlapping, you know, points within it. So, you know, what you were doing manually back in the day, like creating that stuff, you know, in software, that's exactly what this stuff is doing. And then we mentioned that they have their own, their own data types for storing this stuff. Really all it is, is just shapes. So the data types that they store are points, lines, polygons, basically just any type of shape, because when you plot those things, you can, you can plot them inside those rectangles, right? Like you could say, Hey, this particular point falls within these two bounding boxes that I'm looking at. And that's how you can do the important part of this is that's how they can do quick finds on where these things exist. So instead of doing like a, and they actually talk about this in depth, instead of doing a B tree index, like what most relational database systems do, these are using what they called R tree and quad tree implementations so that they can quickly locate points and the sectors or, or rectangles that they fall into. So it's, it's 
I would imagine you have more experience with this. I would imagine it's complicated in terms of how it's implemented, implemented, but the use of it's probably not that bad, right? Like as long as you, as long as you have a grid and these things are plotted in the right places, it's fairly easy to use, right? Oh yeah, and uh, you can anytime you do like a Google Map search and get directions from somewhere, you're you're basically using a database that's something something like this is is uh, organized like this. And as a user, it's fantastic. I just type in two addresses, and then I rely on the the heavy work of the like the mapping structure behind. But just like when you do a, a like a direction search on your phone or whatever, uh, it's not doing that A star algorithm. You know, looking at every possible path between two things. You know, including walking, bicycling, uh, public transportation, buses, all that stuff. Uh, no, it, it it's already figured out. Like the software, the the service that you're using has already roughly figured out the most efficient paths of like for just about everywhere to just about everywhere. I say just about, it was like there's some rounding and you know, some stuff that they take all sorts of little shortcuts. So what that means is they basically have stored um, information about uh, efficient routes uh, already. And so that when you say I need to go from point A to point B, it can leverage what it already knows about how things connect in order to figure that out much quicker. And then it just kind of sprinkles on yeah, I say sprinkle as if it's easy, but like traffic data and stuff like that in order to say like, ooh, this one's not as great. So we're going to update those weights and kind of recalculate. Uh, but I, I think the whole subject is just fascinating. It's really cool. It's a really cool space. Uh, the whole mapping thing is really cool. If you, even just Google Maps and Google Earth in general. Uh, and I know there's other services now, but I mean, it's just such a technical marvel on so many different levels. And it's so usable and so helpful and just the technology behind it and, and the user experience everything about it is just like a masterwork. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And it's funny. Like when you said it's sort of easy to just break along some other things, like I think about that and it's crazy, right? Like there's the way that the crow flies, like, you know, for the software to be able to point the, the quickest, the quickest route between point A and point B in terms of distance. But then when you start factoring in, if you're, if you're looking at an application like Waze, that's factoring in traffic patterns and then speed limits along those routes and all like it's insane the amount of calculations and whatnot so that goes above and beyond just the 2d space that's there you know going along these roads and then having to add in all kinds of other stuff like it's it's insanely cool what they've done with all this stuff and this is all possible because of these these geospatial databases which are basically just a subset of these these spatial database systems so um really really neat things oh um, look at what a database uh, google uses for maps <laughs> oh that would be cool so there's there's another type so i just mentioned the geospatial that's like you know places on earth or whatever there's another one called spatiotemporal data this one's kind of interesting this is spatial data that has timestamps. now i'm not exactly sure what that would be used for but that sounds pretty cool so that's that's one that exists out there and then the other thing that jay-z mentioned is you know we were just talking about 2d space a second ago right like you look on google maps and you know hey i want to go here to here okay cool awesome well if you're in colorado you might be going up and down mountains right and that's that's a little bit different and they support that kind of stuff like they have support for weather and elevation and and all this so like post gis has all kinds of stuff built on top of it and i'm sure these other systems like aerospike and spatial light also do but you know it's it's super powerful what these things present and give you the ability to do if you're working with spatial data yeah it's interesting uh it looks like aerospike i, I thought i'd heard of it before but and i would have been surprised if uh you know if it was just for gis stuff because i i just don't mess with that stuff but uh, it's actually uh, used for other different type things too, like real-time database kind of NoSQL type stuff. So I'm kind of I'm interested to see what kind of features they have in here specifically for this space. Uh, so that's pretty cool. They compare themselves to Redis. Hmm. Interesting. So an in-memory type thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, I want to I want to know more about Aerospike. <laughs> that's that's why we do this stuff. So a couple of other things to hit on real quick. Like if you want to learn about this, like if this is neat to you or if you have a need for it, as a matter of fact, somebody in our Slack channel, I don't remember who it was, mentioned that they use Postgres or they use a relational database when we were talking about the first set of things because it could do so much. And that's that's one of the reasons why Postgres is so popular is like this plugin for it gives it spatial data, right? And 
you can do most of the things that you need with your data using Postgres, even though things like search, like an elastic search might be better for, but you can fit most of those things into your Postgres. So that might be a reason to lean that way. Right. Yep. But what I was going to say is they have a workshop page for PostGIS, PostGIS, um, and we'll have a link in the show notes for it. But if you're interested, they actually, it's, it's a, it's a massive workshop. Like it walks you through, a ton of steps so they've got uh the workshop modules is split up into 41 now the last three or four are appendixes but if you really want to learn this and you really want to go through some stuff like there's a great resource here if you want to step through that yeah so it's a super cool space to be in. i don't even really know what companies kind of hire and do stuff in this space but it's just cool uh, yeah i agree it's really neat oh and it was also worth noting it, you've it, I'm sure you've probably heard of Redfin, seeing as how you've been going yeah. through, you know, looking for a house and all that kind of stuff. So Redfin was sort of a a competitor to Realtor.com, and they used Postgres and PostGIS for their stuff. At least that's they have it listed on the PostGIS page. So, you know, kind of cool. Like one of the major, you know, real estate companies out there doing things is using open source PostGIS technology. So pretty neat i see uh open gs yeah you got a link here um uh, which looks like uh it's got a lot of uh a lot of information uh, that's available to you because you kind of imagine like if you're starting a business and you need to do gis type stuff uh you pick your database you also need a lot of data this is kind of a like a interesting situation where it's like you really expect your database uh to come <laughs> either with a lot of data data populated or you expect to buy a lot of data and kind of shove it in there to use it that's interesting i didn't even think about that when i worked at ups back in the day they bought data to to fill in the systems right so when they were trying to map out routes for for their drivers or whatever it, yeah when you think of a spatial database it's like oh yeah it should have everything about the u.s in here or whatever right yeah. no it doesn't <laughs> you gotta you gotta get that somehow yeah you think about like redfin what they're doing it's like they you pull up a house on there of course you're going to be able to want to see it on the map and stuff but then also like what schools are nearby what's your closest hospital uh who's your utility companies you know just like little dumb stuff like that it's all based on like physical location what county are you in what are the tax rates like and how you get to that the metadata uh, all that stuff is really important when you're yeah. considering buying a house yeah and it's really cool too like if you go into realtor.com like the app and you search for that stuff like what you just said hey show me the schools nearby schools or whatever it'll it'll draw them out on the map right yep. like it'll draw the bounding lines and everything around it like it's it's amazing what they can do with these database systems so you know again if you're in that space like you should be looking at this type of thing and if you are in that space you probably already have looked at this so yep. you know, yeah walkability score have you seen that I have. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a zero where we live. Yeah. I was going to say like pretty like 75% of the U S is just a zero. So it's, yeah. it's not that impressive, I guess. Yeah. Unless you live in a downtown area, you're basically, you got a less than three probably yeah. everywhere. All right. So, uh, we, we do this every time and, and we want to ask again, like, Hey, we, we don't ask for much, but if you wouldn't mind and you find yourself with a few minutes, leave us a review, say hi, say thanks. And, you know, leave a smile on our face and help other people decide whether or not they want to spend their time listening to one and two hour episodes of, of software talk. So, you know, we, we really do appreciate it. Ivan, thank you for leading the leaderboard there. That's that's awesome. And thank you, everybody that has taken the time over the years to to drop a line and, and say hi and say thank you. We we really appreciate it. Love it. Thank you. Yep. Yes. Uh, I guess we're, we're not going to do mental blocks. It's hard to do with two people, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Stuff. We have to skip it. Um, I think somebody had given a suggestion for something else, but I forgot it already. Cause it's been a busy couple of weeks. So, yeah. um, yeah, we'll, we'll be back to our regularly ske scheduled, um, interruption <laughs> in a future episode. So, all right. So I think you're probably pretty familiar with this one too, right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, I, like I'm definitely familiar with the the space of um, of uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember the word. It's like event stores is what we have in the in the notes, but I'm thinking uh, event sourcing is like yes. where my mind instantly jumps to, and that's a, a big use case for these kind of databases. Uh, and you've got uh, the most popular databases in here. We got event store DB uh, at is that one seventy eight? 
Yeah, one seventy eight. It's way not high down, up on the list. Way down. And we'll talk about why that's so far down, even though it's something a lot of people have heard about. Three thirty six for uh, DB two event store and three thirty eight for an event store. And, and remember, uh, remember, there's only like four hundred total. So like these things are like bottom third of the list. Yep. And uh, the idea here is that these are oh, there it is. Uh, these are used for the uh, implementing the concept of event sourcing, which we've talked about before. It's kind of like in your bank account where you have a list of transactions and you can total them up to see how much you currently have in the database. But it's really important to have those transactions too. So you can explain to a customer or if you're the customer, you can see like, where did my money go? What happened here? And you know that nobody's like robbing you or kind of sneaking anything, uh, anything bad is happening. And yeah, it's kind of, we talk about the notion of like replaying these transactions in time in order to see how you got to where you're at now. And when we talk about where you're at now, we often refer to that as materializing as saying we've run through these transactions and this is the the state of things at this time. We've materialized this list. And, and it's worth noting materializing that thing only works because the data is immutable, right? Like once it's written, you can't change it. It's, it's written in stone. Right. Like that's, that's what it is. Yeah. So if I had to make a database, uh, it might be this type just because I'm lazy and I don't, uh, don't want to deal with the updates and even querying is kind of limited because in a lot of ways it only really makes sense to just kind of loop through from the beginning to the end of these things. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, they, they call out the main contrast, like most people think in terms of relational databases, like that's, you know, that's probably the standard that most everybody starts with. And the big difference is a relational database stores the current state of a record, right? Like that's the whole purpose of it. If, you know, if Jay-Z has a record and I have a record, it's going to tell our latest address in there because that's, that's what it is. Right. And if you want to store historical data, you can, and there's all kinds of ways to do it. Like for instance, like SQL server has temporal tables, right? Where you could basically do a few commands and you can hook up this, this sort of historical tracking behind the scenes. So every time you update a record, it throws a, a, a history record into this temporal table. You can do it manually, right? Database systems that don't technically support, you just create a history table or an audit table. That's basically a complete mirror of the main table. And then you could do it, but that's you sort of creating your own solution. You're having to maintain your own inserts, updates, triggers, all kinds of things, right? Like that's what you're doing. This this is how it works out of the box, right? Like you, like Jay-Z said, if you have a, a bank account and you deposit something and then somehow money leaves your bank account and you didn't do it, nobody's going to be able to go back in and update that and say, no, that didn't happen. What they'd have to do is they'd have to add another record to move the thing back in. So you'd actually see the flow of exactly how everything happened, right? So it it, it is truly just a living audit history of every change that happens to uh, uh, an entity in your system. Yeah, you imagine like uh, you probably like you can either imagine or you worked at a place where you had a relational database and someone said they needed history. So you made an underscore history table or you turned that feature on the database and then someone said, Oh, well, we also need this table. And now you've got two tables to, like underscore history. You've got those features turned on too. And next thing you know, it's like you're up to five or six tables. And then somebody says like, Hey, what did this person do around this time? And you're doing this weird query where you're unioning stuff and doing aware on this and uniting the results of this and like looking at all these tables. Like that's the kind of stuff that's like really just natural to these kind of databases. And you can imagine for like a security perspective, uh, how that's really important to say like, Hey, um, are, was there an abnormal amount of withdrawals within the last 24 hours? Like that's something that's, you know, kind of easy to do here. Like, is this person having a flurry of activity more than usual, you know, like fraud type situations or accounting? Uh, so it, it just, it just works well. It's, it seems really great, but, uh, why don't we see, well, I, I guess we'll get into, but why don't we see more databases that are kind of designed around this notion? I think, I think it goes back to what we said. I think it's the reason why everybody sort of falls back to relational databases because it's not a join system, right? Yeah. It's, it's here's, here's my thing. And then follow this thing throughout time. Not, Hey, I need this thing to join to a person into a location into a whatever. Like it's just, it's not made for that, right? It's made for tracking the state of objects over time. Yeah. So it's like by definition, you need another database next to it. And yes. 
You can also just do this in that database too. You just have to be a little bit more careful about your use cases. But for the most part, it's kind of defined by what you can't do. Like you can't, <laughs> you know, you can't query it. Uh, it. It doesn't make sense to really query it too much independently, and you, you can't change stuff. Like I can, I can implement that. <laughs> Done. Right. Right. Yeah. I just have it, to not do stuff. That's great. It's super important. Like what what you're saying. You can't change stuff. You. Technically, you are not allowed to update an event that was there, and you cannot delete an event that was there. So it's it's sort of simple in terms of what it provides you, right? It inserts new events, and it allows you to query those events over time. That's that's kind of the whole gist of this. Now, this, this is where we've always had conversations, like especially with the designing data intensive applications is, you know, when do you decide that you're going to add another piece of tech to the stack, right? Yeah, I can I can add a bunch of underscore history tables to my Postgres or my SQL Server or whatever, but that gets nasty over time, just like Jay-Z said, right? Like now you're going to union your main table with the other table and you're going to have all these things, all these query criteria on these joins of these unions to make things work. And it's like, well, if you just had this thing over here that's just purpose built for exactly what you're trying to do, then that's cool. But I'm going to save some of that because there are some really cool reasons why you would use this over something other than a relational, just as a, as an augmenting type technology. <clears throat> yeah, totally. Um, now one, one thing that's super cool here is in your mind, I don't know if your mind goes here. Mine definitely did. If you have, if you have a bank account that has just, you know, tens of thousands of transactions over time, it seems like it's horribly inefficient, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to look at, at Jay-Z's bank account, but I've got to replay these these 10,000 events to yeah. get to what the current statement or the balance is, right? Like, that seems wrong. Yeah, totally. Like, for 10 years, like, if you've been in a bank for 10 years, imagine, like, running through every little transaction, every little time you gained one penny in interest, like, all that stuff. Like, no, that's, that's ridiculous. So, if we could have this database kind of maintain the current total and be able to, like, truly rely on it so we can do an instant check at any point in time at, like, what is my score, what is my number now, then that's great. And they have that. They they have this thing where they can't, not all of them, but I'd say probably a vast majority of the popular ones have this ability to store these snapshots over over time that materialize those events up to a certain point in time, right? So, so I don't know, maybe say it's daily they do it. Um you know, if you go to look at yesterday's thing, it's got this materialized state, so it doesn't have to replay all 10,000 events to get there. So, so it's been thought about, right? Like, it's not like everybody's like, oh, I'm going to take this hit every single time. So that's good. Yep. I see you got the event store DB uh, linked here. You take a look at that. Uh, I did take a little bit of that and they were talking about some of the information in there. So uh, like I did on, on several of these databases, when I was taking notes, I would find usually I would go for the most popular one. And if their documentation was good, then I go with it. And in some cases, the most popular one had horrible documentation and I would find the one that had better documentation. In this case, event store DB, we did a pretty good job. And so I grabbed some notes off their stuff, right? Like one of the things that they mentioned is they sort of define theirs as an immutable log, which is perfect, right? Like it, and it's funny because it reminds me of Kafka when I hear that, but this is a lot more purpose built. And yeah. I want, golly, I think it was Jim Hummelson had mentioned that Kafka is not the same thing as an event log, right? Like it's, yeah. And he had an entire write-up in our Slack channel that was absolutely fantastic. So don't mix the two, but it is an immutable log. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can do with Kafka, but you are kind of swimming upstream. You're going to have to do a lot of configurations. It's easy to get wrong. And then there's just some kind of weird stuff. It's just not not a database, ultimately, at the end of it. Uh, But looking at uh, Event Store right here, uh, I checked out their API documentation. And like right in the notes and the documentation, like these are pretty much the three calls that you're uh, the only three calls you're ever going to have to make with this database. Uh, one is appending. Uh, the second one is reading, which is reading the stream and you retrieve all recorded events. And then the third one is subscribe. So you can get like new events coming in and, that, and you know, everything else is kind of like uh, you can, but that's not really what we're here for. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Like yeah. it's, it's the the definition of simplicity, right? Like you get what you need and that's it. Now, the 
the subscribe thing is actually pretty cool because they took it a step further, right? So the other ones are what we talked about. You get your audit log, you add an event and you can query the event. That's, that's, that's basically it. But this subscribe thing means that you can now have reactive applications, right? You have applications that respond to, Hey, there was an, uh, there was an update event or a new event added to, to Jay-Z's bank account. I can have this, my application respond to that. Like, does it need to go do something because this event happened? And you know what we call the Hollywood patterns. Don't, like, don't call us. We'll call you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Golly. That's been a while. Yeah. It seems to be what we do in streaming technology nowadays. Like that's really what it is. Yeah. Pulling stinks. Like let someone else lower level deal with that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. So yeah, on the event store DB, like some of the other things that they call out is they have these guaranteed rights. They have a concurrency model and they have these stream APIs, like what Jay-Z just said, which are fantastic. Like give you tons of ability within your applications. It, it's it's hard not to compare it to Kafka because that's what Kafka gives you, right? Like Kafka gives you the ability to write these streaming applications that just respond to events that come in. Yeah, totally. And it's just, uh, it could be so many other more things like you're going to, you have, no matter what you're doing with Kafka, you are going to be tweaking configs and they're really confusing and weird and they all matter and you're probably going to get them wrong for a while. So There's so many, there's so many, you yeah. can't get it all right the first time or the 20th. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the the event store DB, another couple things they call out. So it's available for .NET, Java, Go, Node, Rust, Python. I'm sure they have more. And they say it runs on all OSs, which is beautiful. Windows, Mac, Linux. Not, not everybody runs on Windows. It's funny. Like w- I started out as a Windows developer and, you know, everything was Windows. And then as you get in, especially more into the open source world, nothing runs on Windows so, or it's or it's jumping through hoops to do it. So it's nice to see that they actually do it for all. Yeah. And it's open source, too. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, this runs on a cluster, so it can be highly available, which is beautiful. They have these optimistic concurrency checks. Beautiful. This. All right. So this is the part that to me is so super cool. So we've talked about the audit history. Beautiful. We've talked about the fact that it's simple. Beautiful. This is what takes it to another level for me. And this, this right here, if you were deciding whether or not you wanted to write some, some audit temporal tables in your relational database versus using something like event store DB, this would be the defining factor in my mind, whether or not it was worth adding this to your, to your tech stack. So they allow projections based off new events that come through. So they call it interesting occurrences in your data, right? And I'm just going to read this example verbatim because it will explain it better than I can. And then we can talk about it afterwards. So uh, let's say that as a medical research doctor, you want to find people diagnosed with pancreatic cancer within the last year. During the treatment, a patient should not have had any proxies for a heart condition, such as taking aspirin every morning. Within three weeks of their diagnosis, they should have been put on treatment X. Within one month after starting the treatment, they should have failed with a lab result that looked like lab one. Within another six weeks, they should have been put on treatment Y. And within four weeks, failed that treatment with a lab result that looks like lab two. That's a crazy amount of criteria that just happened right there. But what they're saying is with event store DB, it allows you to look at the events that happen over time and use these kind of criteria to come up with new things that you maybe want to publish to another event somewhere. Um, another simpler example they had is you're looking for how many Twitter users said happy within five minutes of the word foo coffee shop and within two minutes of saying London. So you can sort of stitch together these complex streams of, of looking at data and saying, Hey, if I see these things happen, then that means that this needs to happen and it can fire off an event and add, add something to another, um, object, I don't know, event stream, whatever, but 
that's amazing. Like you're talking about analytical type stuff that's built in just based off the event streams that are coming through. Yeah, it's really cool. I was like, when I first read that, I was thinking much more simply. It's just like, if there's transactions greater than a thousand dollars and send it to, you know, potential fraud, whatever, or, uh, if there's more transactions and, you know, X amount of seconds or like if the account goes negative, send it to the billing department or whatever. Uh, but yeah, these are much more complicated and interesting. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, I was thinking, so we do work like this, right? Like we do work where, where you're investigating and trying to tie together events that happen over time and across systems and, and all kinds of things. And we use different technologies for it, right? Like we use Apache Flink and Kafka and we're doing streaming stuff and, and it's really incredible, like what you can do with it, but it's also not super easy, right? When I say it's not super easy, you're having to store a ton of state. So, so for instance, if we back up here, in order to do this, the reason this can do it is because it's storing those incremental pieces of state over time, right? Like, Hey, this person, you know, got treated for, for this, and then they took this medicine and their lab looked like this, right? That can all happen because it's storing each piece of that. And so it can look at it and say, Oh yeah, I saw this, this pattern happen. And it's all in the data. It's in that, that history data. When you're doing this, something, this type thing with Apache Flink and Kafka and all that, you got to store that data somewhere. Right. And by its nature, Apache Kafka is a, it's also an immutable transaction log. But the thing is, usually the way that you're using Kafka is you're sending so much data to it. You can't keep that data for a long period of time, right? Like you might keep it for a week maybe a month, but you're, you're going to eat it in, in storage costs because you got a lot coming in there and a lot of people are using it. So you're having to store that state now, not in Kafka because it's going to go away at some point. So you're having to store that in state within the Flink application, right? And I think behind the scenes, it uses like RocksDB or something. Another thing that we've talked about over time, but, but now you've got to start caring about each piece of state that's going to matter to you right so so if you are trying to do something like this lab this doctor thing where they're trying to find cancer you have to know all those data points that you actually want to store in state and that's going to change over time right like at some point you're going to be like oh man i needed to store this lab type result and so now you're going to have to modify your application to store that state so you're not going to have any history for that, right? Whereas if you're using something like this event store DB, it's all there because it's all been there. So now you can just say, hey, you know, I found this new this new string of events or this pattern of events. You have all the data. And so you could probably add these projections in there and and start looking at it as opposed to always constantly having to build new state in something like a Flink application. And um, there's, there's other streaming apps out there. Um, but this seems like it's purpose built for that, that type of uh, scenario that, that we're looking at. Yeah, it's good stuff. And, and it's highly performant. Uh, they mentioned here on the page, uh, 15,000 writes and 50,000 reads per second, which is uh, really, really big. It's not quite like New York stock exchange numbers, but uh, I mean, it's up there. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> 15, it's pretty good. 15 K writes per second. And I, and I think they also said this is pretty simple to maintain as well. So, you know, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck for it. So to me, again, the, the immutable log, all that kind of stuff is really cool. If you need, if you need like audit history on a lot of things that you do, this seems like a no brainer, but if you, if there's that thing, that's the tipping point and this ability to analyze data as it comes in with these fairly complex or even simple type patterns that you want to see, man, that seems like a, a no brainer to me. Um, especially if it's really not that difficult to maintain. Now I've never run it, so I don't know. <laughs> like they could, I think, I think that's marketing speak, right? Oh yeah. You could just set it up and it runs. Okay. Um, you know, maybe it's like Kafka where, yeah, sure it runs, but you got to configure it 25,000 times to get it to be perfect. Like who knows? But yeah. I, I so, just Googled like what, uh, what is, what databases the stock market use. And of course like, the question is like kind of nonsensical, but, uh, I, I saw quite a few people mentioning KDBX, 
or KDB, which we've talked about last episode, which is interesting. But they 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 mentioned it specifically for using for event sourcing, and that's kind of kind of what I said before too. Is like you can implement this in other databases if it makes more sense for you. So it's interesting. It's, I mean, you, <laughs> is there anything we found that you cannot do in a relational database? Well, uh, the graph stuff is the only thing I, I can really think of, you know, and keep it in mind. But I don't, I don't really think so. But you know, the funny part thing about the graph thing is like SQL Server bolted on graph database yeah. stuff in that by setting up unique, interesting type relationships. It's still not great, but, but yeah, I think wrapping up the, the three episodes that we said, and this is, this is what we've been, I guess, sort of preaching for a couple of years now since we started the designing database intensive applications or data intensive applications is you can make a particular database your hammer. You can. You absolutely can. Every problem that comes in just looks like a nail that needs to get pounded down. There are going to be times that you look at it and you say, wow, this event sourcing thing really seems like that makes a lot of sense for these use cases. Or this graph database, right? Like, I need to see uh, 20 levels separated of relationships, Man, you can't do that easy in a relational database. You could do it, but it's not going to be easy. So keep in mind that that if you find yourself really struggling with keeping something performant or or trying to do things and it's way harder than it seems, you might be trying to push the wrong thing in with your hammer. And that's it's really hard. It's really hard to make that decision before you get into something, right? Like, I mean, we've talked about trying to make a, a, a database, a search engine in the past and man, you find out relatively quick once you get in there that it sucks. Yeah. stuff. Yeah. So there's, it's not an easy answer of, well, should I use this or should I use that or whatever? Right? Like, do you have a team that can support it? Like, do you have an SRE group that can, that can keep the thing running? <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of questions to be asked, but just know that there are just about now for any type of data that you're planning on using, even the vector database type stuff, right? Machine learning. I would have never considered it. I had never even thought about it because I don't live in that space, but they have databases for storing that stuff. Right. So yeah. you need to be aware of your use cases and whether or not you think that the added um, uh, complexity is worth it, I guess. And you know what? You always try it out. Uh, we live in the future, and so you can spin up new databases now with like Docker or, or maybe Kubernetes, uh, and give it a shot. So much easier than it used to be. I mean, uh, just installing SQL Server. You remember how many disks that used to come on, uh, <laughs> like CD-ROMs, and like that's not something you would normally be doing. Like just installing the tools to work with it was such a pain. But now you can just download all that stuff and run it in a container, and then ditch it, and it's just gone off your system without changing anything, messing with anything. It's great. Oh, that's so beautiful. Docker run it all, right? Docker run it. And if you like it, use it. Make it part of your stack. If you yep. don't, it, Docker RM, <laughs> you're yeah. done. It's beautiful. That's pretty cool. You like put a crappy movie on or a movie you've seen before and uh, mess around with any database, pretty much uh, almost almost any database in the world at this point. That's pretty cool. Modern, and I think that's what you do most of the time, right? Like that's, that's you kind of sitting there watching TV doing this stuff. Most oh yeah. Of the time. It's been, I, I've kind of taken a little break from that because, uh, it's not very family friendly, <laughs> friendly, but uh, <laughs> I do enjoy it anyway. <clears throat> when she wants to talk about what she just watched, and you're like, "Oh, uh, yeah, I didn't, yeah. didn't catch it." I'm like, "Leave me alone! I'm working." Uh, uh, wait, never mind. What? <laughs> My bad. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I've been there a few times. <clears throat> so, all right. Now we get on to my favorite portion of the show, seeing as how we missed Outlaws. It is the tip of the week. Yep. So here's uh, what I promised you earlier. Uh, I just got a little piece of hard, uh, networking hardware, <laughs> but it's uh, it's not super fun. So uh, I, at my new house, I have a great internet connection, but really bad cell phone service. And I've looked at where the towers are and all this stuff, and I just can't do anything about it. Like, it sucks. Like, the, your phones drop data, and it just doesn't work very well. So we uh, did a little bit of Googling and found this device that uh, plugs into your network, or you can do it wi- like Wi-Fi too, and uh, you get yourself a, a phone number. 
Uh, you can browse by area, and so we did that. And then uh, we just plugged our old like landline phones uh, into it. We had like a wireless set, and uh, it's like ninety. The I think the device we got was like one hundred and twenty or something, one hundred and ten dollars. And that's it. There's no monthly fee or anything that unless you want to go, you know, get fancy features that I don't care about. And so it was just kind of like a one and done. And it lets us use old school landline home phones, uh, just like you, you know you used to without paying any sort of like crazy fee to AT and T or whatever. And it's basically an IP phone. You know, you can do that kind of stuff on your cell phone too. But uh, talking on your cell phone kind of stinks. Uh, cell phones are really not designed for talking on. And so they're not very comfortable even to hold to your ear at this point. They're designed for your pocket or your purse because that's where they stay most of the time. And so it's kind of this funny case where like cell phones really aren't designed for talking anymore. And it's so nice to like deal with the customer service issue, for example, like by talking on the landline and looking at my phone for whatever information they need, like receipts or warranty info or whatever. Uh, it's, uh, it's been really nice. And this device was just perfect. I set it up in like, you know, 15 minutes or something, most of which was waiting for it to update. And then I just plugged the phone in and it's just worked great. That's amazing. So fun fact for you. Uh, anytime that my phone has rang at the house and outlaw would be like, Hey, the eighties called, they want yeah. the phone back. That's what I have. I have an Uma device okay. that sits here, does the same thing. And I was able to port my phone number from whenever I had a landline back in the day, like years and years and years ago, you're able to port it over to Uma. So yeah. if you don't have a landline, then you just get a new number. But if you did have one, you know, then I think it, it costs nothing per month. Like what Jay-Z said, except you have to pay the, the federal regulation garbage fee. That's like four bucks a month. So that's, yeah. that's, that's what it ends up costing. But yeah, it's a fantastic device. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say they got a little, ast- that's right. This got a little asterisk on there. Cause like they don't charge anything. But right. You still have to pay somebody. Yeah. It's really good. And I think also another, another benefit of at least the new UMA devices, I think you can Bluetooth, um, headsets and stuff to it. So if you don't want to carry around the headset handphone or the, the phone, like what you have in the past, I think you can Bluetooth connect some things so you can have headsets. Like if you just have a Bluetooth thing, like, I don't know if the Apple, um, earbuds or something work out, I'm not sure, but I believe they have that feature. Yeah, they have like three tiers of the actual hardware device. And I think the third tier is the one that supports that. I got the middle one, so it does Wi-Fi, so I didn't have to plug in anything. Okay. Yeah, mine's mine's laying connected. I, I didn't have the Wi-Fi at the time. One other thing worth noting, though, and I brought the in. So your use case is what reminded me of this. So my sister lives out in the middle of nowhere down in Florida, like nowhere. And they had a similar problem where they one bar on their cell phone which is horrible right like you you can't carry on a conversation because it breaks up all the time they actually have a booster that's installed in their house and i can't remember exactly which one i went i went to best buy and looked at it and i want to say it's something like this we boost and and i'll put a link to it here in the show notes but it actually works pretty well. Like I can talk to her. She's at home and it never cuts out. Everything works well. Now these things are not cheap. I want to say that they're, they're like anywhere between 500 and like $800, depending on, on the boost thing you get, but it absolutely does work. It takes that one bar cell phone signal at their house and turns it into, you know, four in the house. So you know, if, if you happen to live out in the middle of nowhere and you need something like that, which the irony is Jay-Z does not live in the middle of nowhere, but there are, for whatever weird reason where we live, like it's a fairly populated area. There are several dead spots on, yeah. on popular services, which makes no sense. I have a Verizon tower one mile for me and a T-Mobile tower 0.4 miles. And I have T-Mobile and it's awful. It's awful. Yeah. People at AT&T have been over here and they say it's awful too. I have yet to find anybody running Verizon, which I thought was the most popular one, but who knows? Yeah, man, it's, it's absolutely insane. And I don't know if it's because of the trees, cause it's not all that hilly. I don't think where you live. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane. I mean, there's, there's dead spots in my neighborhood. <laughs> like as you're driving through, it's like, really? Yeah. So <clears throat> yeah. All right. So mine, and this is, I guess in, the spirit of outlaw. I saw this on, on Twitter or X or whatever. 
the other day, and it was pretty interesting. I oh, did I not? I will paste the link to the to the Twitter thing, which apparently I left out. But here's the gist of it. They said, don't use get reset dash dash hard. Now I found this interesting because we've definitely said use get reset dash dash hard in the past, right? Like if you have changes that you've made and you just want to undo them, do this, it wipes it out, takes you back to the previous state, the previous commit that you were working on, right? They said instead use get stash dash you. And the reason they say that is because, and we talked about this in our Git episodes where we were going over in depth the Git stuff, Git stash adds the objects to the Git history, right? So if for some reason you did a Git stash or Git reset dash dash hard and you were like, oh man, I just messed up. I need that back. You're not getting it back. There's no history. It didn't write any objects. There's nothing in that in that Git tree there. It's gone, if you do a git stash dash u, it actually writes it to history and then cleans you back up just like the git reset would. But if for some reason you were like, oh man, I forgot that I had those three files that I did there, you can now get back to it because git has the history in there. It built the tree, it built the objects. So found this really interesting. Hopefully that helps somebody out. And uh, I will have a link to the Twitter thing where the guy mentioned it. But yeah, I thought that was a fantastic thing. Yeah, it's, it's like we thought, yeah, get, talked about Al, get reset hard is like the I think maybe was even like the one thing that destructively affects your files. Yes. Yeah, yeah good it's, to know. it's like the only thing you can't recover from. <laughs> like Git yeah. is really good about giving you guardrails. But that one's like, you're just like, no, I don't care. <laughs> I don't want guardrails. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think that's it. it. All right. Yeah, I, th- I think we're good. We're going to do the uh, real outro or? Yeah, why not? I mean, we started with sort of the, the real one, so let's, let's, let's end with the sort of real one. All right. Well, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to give us reviews by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, and while you're up there at codingblocks.net, make sure you check out the show notes, which there will be a lot on this one. Uh, Examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack channel. If you have not been to codingblocks.net slash Slack, you should join because there's a lot of amazing people out there. And we still, in my opinion, have one of the greatest tech communities out there because people are just generally nice to each other, which is refreshing in this day and age. Yeah. So... Yeah, uh, and also check us out on Twitter, even though we don't post that much up there. But we do read and find some things. Like, X, yeah, X, uh, X. X. What, what, they're not tweets. They they renamed them. What are they now? <laughs>